0: The rotunda was filled with nervous chatter and the shuffling of sandals against the ancient stone tile. Rakoff looked down from a concealed balcony, watching intently as the last of the novices filled into the circular chamber below. He studied their faces, their posture, identified the ones who were scared and homesick, the ones excited just to be in a new environment, the ones masking everything else behind a display of cool confidence picked out the handful he'd need to make an example of early on, estimated how many wouldn't make it to their first review. He sighed. Even after years as a keeper, and a keeper's assistant before that, it was still hard for him to determine at a glance which of the new arrivals would stand out above the others. He'd asked Tetrava countless times how she just knew things like that. But the older emergent invariably replied with little more than a shrug and a half-assed smile. Just a feeling, Ataya, an old lady's intuition. The doors swung shut with a thud as the final stragglers hurried inside. The excited buzz of the assembled novices quieted somewhat, anticipating the appearance of an instructor or administrator, but none appeared. Whispered questions began to circulate as a sense of confusion and curiosity spread around the room. Then all at once, the entire crowd of novices collapsed onto the ground as the air seemed to grow suddenly heavy. Even the strongest individual's legs buckled underneath them, forcing them to sit or kneel. Only one figure remained on their feet, a middle-aged man, short and wiry, with a close-cropped auburn hair standing in the middle of the kneeling crowd. Rakov looked around at their faces, all turned now to look at him, and the corner of his mouth twitched as he concealed a grin. The show was about to start. He palmed a small object out of one of his pockets. Some of you, he began, are wondering why you're here, why you were pulled away from your homes and families and shipped to the other side of the world he located one of the confident looking novices he'd noticed before, made eye contact with him for a long second. Others of you think you know the answer already. You're here to train, to get stronger, to rise above the others, to become exalted. Rakoff bellowed out the last sentence and his voice echoed magnificently in the cavernous hall. He scanned the crowd again. He saw heads nodding with determination and smiled wryly. He continued, quieter now. Well, they'd be half right. You are here to train, but not to become one of them. No, that's a fairy story for any of you. You're here because you are dangerous. Because there is a power in you that will tear you apart and destroy everything and everyone you love. The people back home are scared of that power, scared of you, and rightfully so. Novices shuffled to the side, parting in front of him as he circled through the seated crowd. You are here to learn to control that power so that it doesn't kill you. You're here to learn to survive and no more. In exile, any mistake could be fatal. He stopped and raised his hand, procuring the object he'd concealed before. It was a palm-sized teardrop of amber with a large, dangerous-looking arthropod sealed within. Several younger members of the crowd gasped as it appeared, apparently from thin air. Rakov held it at eye level, studying the fossil as he spoke. This is a fail-safe. A second chance if you slip up. The little bug trapped in here was a parasite, an emergent creature just like all of you. But rather than produce his own energy, he had to siphon off others. Even now, trapped for a couple of hundred years, some part of him is still hungry. So, if you're about to pop and level everything in a 50 meter radius, he'll start eating up all of that excess energy and give you the chance to get it under control giving you a chance to survive. He looked back at the assembled, saw a mixture of greed and fear on their faces. With a playful flick of his wrist, he tossed the chunk of amber into the air and caught it. I'd love to give each of you one of these, but unfortunately they're quite hard to come by, and I've only got the one. He strode back to the center of the room, by and by, and crouched down placing the teardrop on the floor before standing up again. So, the first person to touch the stone gets to keep it. If you touch the ceiling or the walls, he gestured up at the dome above, you're out. The students looked around, confused. How and why would they touch the ceiling when the stone floor was right there in front of them? Rakoff smiled knowingly. Ready? On my mark, get set, and go! And all at once, the entire group of novices rose into the air as gravity abandoned them. Many exclaimed loudly as they suddenly became airborne, and the room above Rakov's head filled with flailing limbs as a hundred people tried to regain their balance all at once. He looked up, smiling wildly now. Everyone understands the rules. Stay off the walls, but otherwise you can do whatever it takes to get back down. This is your chance to prove yourself. I'll be watching carefully. And he stepped back out of the way of the amber on the floor.
1: Welcome to Building Vessor, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes with the Quantum Spin Studios team where we talk about the process of building a wholly original franchise IP called World of Vessor. A world where magic is a force of nature as primordial as gravity or light. In our first episode, we talked about the inspiration that brought World of Vesser into being. And in this episode, our second, we're going to share an overview of Vesser so you get a more detailed peek into the world, its culture, society, and more. So let's get into it. I am Victory Palmisano. I'm Ann Halk.
0: I'm Mike McCart.
1: Hi, Mike and Ann. How are you? Hey, Victory. <laughs> Doing pretty good. Good, Mike. How are you? You just read a story.
0: I just read a story. It's a and great you did story. A great job. Written by, uh, you know, Alec Hensinski on yes. our world building team. I believe, unless I'm mistaken, is the first piece of in world fiction ever written in the world of Vessar.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, that was very compelling. I hope you enjoyed, listeners. Much more where that came from.
0: I tried to do my best audiobook voice from back in the day.
1: <laughs> oh, you, you <laughs> totally got it. You nailed it. You nailed it. This is the, the part where Mike, if you wouldn't mind just giving us a quick overview, as, as you have coined it, Vesser in five.
0: Ironically, because it has never been done in five minutes ever. <laughs> <laughs> Some have more accurately called it Vesser in six or Vesser in eight. It's funny, like building a world from scratch. I'm sure we'll talk about this at some point. But uh, you know, we wrote a constructed language, made a constructed language called Runja, and all three names uh, in the uh, story I just read are in Runja. And I somewhat Rakov. I I really did a good job on. Um, the Traia uh, was was not great, and uh, I'm not even gonna try the other one. Uh, Uh, The language of Runja is based on uh, the vocalizations of birds and reptiles as interpreted through the International Phonetics Alphabet. So there's a lot of uh, sounds that are used primarily in lesser known languages and um, uh, clicks and trills and all sorts of things as a Westerner are quite hard. But the way we've arranged the language... It'd be hard for anyone who speaks an Earth language to speak, which was on purpose, because uh, we're trying to create a convincing world that it's obvious it's not Earth, and it's not an Earth spinoff. So, you know, when we think about this world and what it's like, uh, you heard us last week say that it's based on the question of what if magic was real, as in part of physics. So magic is not a supernatural thing. Uh, in the, the the cosmology of Veser, and certainly not on the planet itself. Our story, um, Veser is the planet, it means uh, the good nest in Runja, um, but uh, the the story actually takes place on a smaller stage, which is the continent of Nausea and even most of Nausea is not accessible uh, to the people who live there anymore, because of these titans, right, and the, the, the evolutionary history of the planet, some organisms grow to be basically evolutionary dead ends. They become too large to reproduce, but they're too powerful to die quickly. So they become, you know, uh, in the case of biological titans, um, evolutionary dead ends that that lumber on for for eras, perhaps even eons. Um, and uh, you know, in in against that backdrop of these 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 apex 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 predators, they're almost moving ecosystems. Um, they're, they're, they don't really have an earth equivalent. We have people trying to survive. Those people are the Vahashath. Um, The Vahashoth are the people of Hesh, that's what that literally means in Runja, um, and Hesh is a city-state. Uh, it used to be a port city in what we call the Azimuth Empire. That was the, the once great uh, empire ruled by people known as the Ascendant. Uh, the Ascendant were incredibly powerful magic people, um, and they could do both types of magic in the world, which I'll tell you about in just a minute. Uh, and then as the, the civilization fell, fell, fail, fail, it failed, but it failed, it fail, uh, it as the civilization fell, uh, in something called the Age of Consequence, the uh, consequences of the actions of the Ascendant, by the way, uh, Hesh was the one city that never fell. So I tell people, think about like, what if civilization fell in the united states and like uh, the only city that survived was jacksonville florida right jacksonville's like uh, it's a it's a large-ish city but it's not of like national or international import but suddenly it's the only city left in the united states that's what happened with hesh um and as uh hesh managed to survive the age of consequence they radically changed the way things were done um and that meant they had to create an emergent compromise uh which meant you know emergent people like the 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 novices you heard in the story at the top of the podcast they're not allowed to be here anymore we send them to another place so we're creating an encampment uh, across the sea where those people train and learn to control their powers and then use them in a way that's productive Toward the needs of society, um, and then the really good ones get to come home. They're the exalted. And uh, an interesting thing about the Vahashath is it is one people, but there are three different species. There's humans like us. There are the Runja, which are paraavian mesotherms, or you could think of like if the dinosaurs never went extinct, what they might be like today. Uh, so they are you know, highly intelligent. Uh they are they are social, they're communal nesters. Um, and because they're warm blooded and social, even though they're not primates, they're not hominids, there's a lot of understanding between humans and runja. We both have oxytocin driven rituals, basically. we we like bonding with other living organisms. But the third species uh are the Torifex, and the torifex are what if uh reptiles and mammals had never evolved on earth and insects just kept uh as sort of happened in prior eras here getting larger and so the torfex are eusocial insects they're uh in the same family uh as bees ants and wasps um but they're big like you know a big torfex is 800 900 pounds maybe even a thousand pounds like the big warriors uh the workers you know uh are four feet long so they're uh big bugs <laughs> and bugs in the colloquial sense uh, and they live in colonies so hesh is built around literally built almost in the shadow of a torifex tower uh and all across uh nausea that's how that was the key to a successful civilization was humans and runjas partnering with the torifex and building cities around their towers um And some people, some uh, runjas, some humans, and some torfex are emergent, meaning the power of emanation can be channeled through their physical forms. Um, Emanation is uh, body-feeling magic, like your emotions and your your body intuition are deeply tied to your ability to to practice it. Uh, And it is the ability to, through a means they don't understand, that we as creators do, uh, do things in the world that are magical—to to freeze things, to levitate things, to read minds, to transform their bodies, to transform the bodies of others, to shake the earth, to summon lightning—you know whatever uh, incredible, almost superhero-like feats exist in the world—they come from emanation. There's another kind called sigil arcana, and sigil arcana uh, appeared in in recorded history. Like people know when sigil arcana started. And uh, it's new and exotic. It's not well understood. It's incredibly dangerous, but it's done by scribing. So uh, through what you could think of as like a very coordinated uh, dance, it's like dancing three-dimensional calculus, <laughs> you create these scribe these symbols in the air called sigils. And they do things, but they don't do things. Uh, it's not like if you watch movies or video games where, you know, you put your hand out and all these little symbols appear and then you shoot beams from the air. You have to make like a sentence of sigils to do anything. So it takes like a while, like a good while to do literally anything with sigil arcana. And the emergent compromise said, hey, guess what? One person can't be emergent and arcane. And if you're gonna hold political office, you can't be emergent or no sigil arcana. We're gonna, we're gonna divide in a systems of checks and balances, the powers of the world. And uh, they created the Order of the Science to administer Sigil Arcana. Uh, so that led to like some factions in the world. You'll, you'll, you'll hear about these groups a lot uh, if you follow the, the media we end up producing or even if you listen to the show. I suspect these will come up a lot. There is a, a group called the Seat of Seven Thrones. They call them the Seven for short. Those are the savvy political operators. Originally they were kind of merchant traders uh, who are elected to be the ruling council of Hesh. They are the executive branch. They are the judicial branch. They are the legislative branch. There is no political separation of powers uh, in this world. Uh, The seven created the order of signs. All the scribes, the people who do sigil arcana, are members of the order of signs. Only the order of signs is authorized to do sigil arcana. And at the The legislation, the regulations around Sigil Arcana are incredibly restrictive because it's really dangerous. You get your sigil wrong, you end up wiping out a third of a continent. Uh, Then there's the augury that's part of the order, and that's like the secret police part of the order, and also the part of the order that oversees exile and the emergent. So the emergent, which are kind of the OG magical people of the world, uh, are supervised by... Uh, for our 80s people out there, the new kids on the block. So, And then you've got the Exalted. That's the 24 most powerful emergent in the world. Like superheroes proper. They have been so shaped by the constant use of emanation that they start to look scarcely like their originating species. They Their bodies have been permanently changed and modified by how much emanation that they channel... And they are incredibly powerful. They are uh, celebrities. They are the celebrated defenders of Hesh. And then finally you have, uh, in exile, the Expeditionary Corps. And the Expeditionary Corps is, uh, works as the bridge between the governor of exile, who works for the Seven, and the augury, who works for the Order of the Signs, to pick out emergent people to go do expeditions in the wilderness, which is called Aletheuk, the areas around exile are Aletheuk. And, uh, you know, that's our factions, that's our world. We want to give you enough like toehold to understand those things, to be able to follow the conversations we have about building a, you know, Star Wars or, or Tolkien uh, scale world Uh, when there's nothing to actually read or watch or do yet.
2: Thanks, Mike. So, Mike, you mentioned just a few minutes ago the idea of exile and that being where the eminent people are sort of sent to to train and eventually go out into Alataic. Can you explain a little bit of how that ties into some of the first audience experiences we're going to be offering?
0: Terrific. Yeah, absolutely. So exile is a place. Uh, Many people call the emergent exiled. Instead of calling the emergent people, they just say, they call them the exiled. Uh, they are sent to literal exile and that that's not an accident they called the city that. It's really a town. It's built on uh, the ruins of a city from the Azimuth Empire, a place known as Suktu. So uh, there's the township of exile, which is like a little port town, because literally like there's docks and ships go back and forth between hash and the township and hash in the exile um and uh and then there's the garden of suktu which is like built on the ruins proper that's where emergent people learn and train and then inside the garden of suktu there is the conservatory the uh expeditionary corps is there and the reason our camera in the world of esr starts there is because it's a great place to tell like different kinds of stories so uh you know We have a couple of different projects in the works that are mainly about emergent people's lives. Well, they're all in exile. And uh, we designed the Expeditionary Core for a reason. It's a way that we always have a way to have uh, different characters intersect and interact with each other through expeditions. Because Exile is also the name of the game you play, the TTRPG. And we've built a TTRPG that is designed to be accessible and inclusive and representational.
1: And in case there's anyone listening who doesn't know what a TTRPG is, that means tabletop role-playing game.
0: You've probably heard of Dungeons & Dragons. It's the most famous TTRPG in the world. Thank you, Victory. hmm so we're launching one, and ours is uh, not so much focused on technical combat. Although you can certainly fight things in the game of Exile, our game is built around adventure, discovery, and social intrigue. So adventure can include combat. Uh, you know, it includes environmental encounters. Uh, it's going out and doing things that are active and exciting, and engaging and sometimes they turn scary so they have a special type of adventure encounter known as a terror encounter for when the odds are very much against the survival of your party there's a mechanic to let you know that and to take this moment very seriously and to let you feel a little bit afraid if that's if you're the kind of person who (laughs) who likes roller coasters you'll probably like terror encounters uh then we have these kind of discovery Uh, moments of play, which are all about exploration and learning and experiencing wonder, because the world of Vessor is, in fact, quite beautiful. And then there is social intrigue. There's lots of factions sort of working against each other and making alliances of convenience uh, in the world. And we know, um, our research tells us, that a lot of people, like, let's be honest, TTRPGs started as an offshoot of tactical wargaming. And they're that is historically a very male, probably even white male pursuit. And as TTRPGs have become like one of the most inclusive forms of media in the world and representational forms of media, the preferences of what people wanna do in TTRPGs has changed. And so we wanna support and facilitate deep character-based social role-play experiences in the setting, right? Uh, but there's something for everyone. If that's, like, not your uh, not your bag, you know, become a, a bulwark who has a, a an obstacle in social interactions and stand there with your arms folded while your party chit-chats. It could, you could be a great uh, comic foil uh, in, in a moment. So, you know, we're creating this game that lets you play in the world. And what's really exciting to us, we you know, we keep talking about that's interconnected, interconnected. When you're playing Exile when we get to, like, official games, you'll be playing in the same, not just the same world, the same setting, but the same continuity with the people who are on the shows and the the novels that originally come out and the graphic novels and whatever media we have that comes out, it's all happening not just in the same setting, but in the same continuity. And that's uh, well, it's required a lot of careful architecting, but uh, we're super excited about it. And Victory, actually... Yeah, I was thinking about this week, and I've been meaning to ask you. Like on the note of a TTRPG, Mm -hmm. you've recently started playing for the first time, so you probably Anne and I are old hats at TTRPG play. But I'd love to hear what it was like for you as a new player to try TTRPGs for the first time, including Exile.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, a little backstory on me: I was big into theater as a younger person. And so I spent just years and years being so excited to act in plays and a little bit of film and television. And then I decided I didn't want to be in front of the camera and went behind the camera and so have spent 15 plus years producing and like staying out of the spotlight. And so it was an interesting experience the first time that I played because Mike warned me about this and it was true. He said, "You know, some people experience secondhand shame when they see other people (laughs) kind of role playing. You know, and so when I showed up to the game, there was various levels of this. But some people were like very into it. You know, they had accents. What do you
0: mean they were talking in voices (laughs) or something? (laughs) Yes, (laughs)
1: Uh, they they were miming." having a bird on their shoulder like it was just very intense and so it was true like the first i would say 30 minutes of the first time i played i was just like mortified Mm. which is surprising to me because i come from a background where like you know we did all that stuff uh so somewhere in me that sense of like play got really dormant
0: you did improv right
1: I did tons of improv.
0: So what felt different about like being at a table with Dice doing improv than being on a stage doing improv?
1: Well, yeah. and and then the others at the table, the few times I've played, everyone has been so warm and encouraging, which I hadn't experienced that kind of... You know, nobody was shaming. Nobody was judging. So the more, the more I stepped out of my comfort zone and dipped my toe in the in the waters of trying to really like immerse myself in my character and and the world and the more accepted I felt I got looser and so every time I play it's like it's a little bit easier but it was it was really fun and kind of sparked a whole like self dialogue of just like whoa I've really lost my sense of play mm. and uh, it kind of, yeah, it was a really cool experience, and I'm excited to continue playing. You did excellent.
0: You you were you were getting into it in uh. What, by the time we got to Mothership, yeah, mm-hmm. Mothership. If you're not a TTRPG gamer, is a an award winning independent uh, okay. horror game. Um, and you you played the role of the scientist quite well. Good yes. memory. <laughs> yeah. Well, Victor was a scientist, and I was like a dock worker. Yeah. <laughs> so there'd be all these like science things in the world uh, because it's it's sci-fi. So eventually, I'd, I'd be like, "Well, I heard once that uh, <laughs> I think we can make like an insertion orbit or something. I don't know, do- Doctor. You know about that, though, right?" <laughs> the Victor would be like, uh, "GM, do I know about that?"
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's the other thing I learned is that I thought that I had to go in knowing everything about my character and. So I felt very intimidated, like, obviously, I'm not a scientist. I cannot answer a lot of these questions that I'm being asked. So once I learned that I could ask questions of the GM and become informed about my character as we went, I got much more comfortable.
0: I can't wait to hear you do a voice. Yes. That's that's the day I'm waiting for. I know. I've heard you speak in character. but I, uh...
1: <laughs> That'll be the next level.
0: Yeah. Did I just invoke some secondhand shame even with the notion of... I
1: think uh... I started imagining myself doing an accent. I was like a little <laughs> bit dizzy.
0: <laughs> I love it. Uh, but it is funny like... Uh, one thing that I find comforting about TTRPGs and people who play Vester, this is no different. I don't do a bad Scottish accent when I do a Scottish accent at TTRPG table. I do a perfect coastal Faeranian accent. Absolutely. You see what I mean? Like, because there's no Scotland. It's not a thing, right? <laughs> right. In, in 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 the right. Sword Coast and right. in, in D&D, and then the same thing, you know, the humans in Vessar all walked across a land bridge. They were running from something in a prior era. and uh, But it was a coalition of different races and ethnicities. They were all running from a basically a a titan run rampant and uh they arrive at Naja, and they still have all these different languages and all these different uh ways of speaking and then uh they spread across this continent as they they met the runja and so you know we imagine there's like an incredible diversity per capita in manners of speaking and linguistic backgrounds in hash and one thing that's really fun as a player is being able to lean into when you're doing even improv, there's some like expectation of performance quality because there's an audience. But when you're playing a TTRPG, you're telling a story with your friends around the table, mm-hmm. you are the performers and the audience. And I think there's yeah an incredible freedom. I never did voices until I started playing tabletop role playing games. And then certainly when I started jamming a lot and I delight and just coming up with the most over-the-top characters that really wouldn't work in any other kind of media.
1: That's such a good point because I, that's also part of the fun is that you can kind of slip in. This is something I've learned. You can slip in and out of characters so that you're kind of sharing an inside joke with your friend at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're also playing your character. So. It's just fun to watch everyone interact and then be part of it so everyone can burst into laughter, which is not in the scene, because you're the audience in that, in that moment, you know, and yeah, it was very cool.
2: There's something so fun about the division between character and player that, that does exactly what you're talking about, about there is a group of people sitting around the table and a group of people traversing the wilderness, and they're not the same person, but they are kind of the same people and and so you're you're exploring that together and just usually having a pretty good time
0: and to that point the the, the folks listening don't know that you are a world class art director they don't they have no way of knowing that they don't get to work with you every day but they probably also don't know that you are a quite experienced ttrpg player played a lot of different games at a lot of different tables and you also have uh by my estimation like an expansive knowledge of the TTRPG media that's out there so I'm curious about your thoughts on like the TTRPG community as a whole today uh maybe helping folks that are listening that don't really know about TTRPGs and might be wondering if this is for them like what your experience has been with the community
2: yeah, thanks. Thanks, Mike. Um, the TTRPG community as a whole is kind of this massive, ever-changing beast. And especially the last few years, kind of, kind of like you mentioned, there's a lot of momentum that has been building behind the entry of new, car- like new players um, that span, you know, demographics, genders, ages that weren't traditionally included. Um, and, and so that that kind of growth that we've seen in the people who are interested in either playing or watching people play TTRPGs has driven a sort of wide boom in the number of genres people are playing, um, whether it's something uber crunchy like a Shadowrun first edition or one of the more narrative driven games like you see from Powered by the Apocalypse. Um, it's It's really expanded to create a myriad of options out there. And, and for some people that their interactions with that look like, you know, turning on a show and watching a group of friends sit down at a table and play, or, or it comes down to, you know, sitting in your friend's living room and playing yourself. Um, and I, I think all of this is something that we constantly have in our minds as we develop exile. Uh, Mike, I know you mentioned last week the importance of diverse and inclusive storytelling. And if we are going to authentically back that up with a tabletop game, it has to be built to operate the same exact way. Um, So it's vital that as things develop, we test both new audiences and veteran players to make sure the game is accessible enough at an entry level, but still like provides that meaty core for players to dive into, that there's the opportunity for, you know, narrative exploration, but if you're not comfortable you know totally improving or role-playing things that there's a set of mechanics for you to kind of lean back into. And also with that, making sure that the game holds up, whether it's being played by you or you're watching people in a web show interact with this. And I, I think one of the one of the best tests so far that we've seen has been taking some of our writers through the game mm-hmm. to immerse them in the mm-hmm. world. Um, that's a that's a table both Mike and Victory were at. Mike was our GM. Um, and they know just how incredible of a game that was, seeing, you know, people in different levels of familiarity with tabletop games, different levels of familiarity with acting or writing or... Or directing. You know, art and games walk through Vessor and Exile. And the the intersection of both sort of viewpoints... From having you know, experienced players and new players, and just sitting down and having an absolute delight of an afternoon. Um, and I, I think the conversations that sprung out of that game afterwards were some of the most productive and interesting we've had of the whole process. Mm-hmm. Um, and as as someone who's consumed quite a lot of tabletop media, that that was genuinely surprising for me because I've never, you know, Played with writers, with the kind of secondary goal being creating a new story with them outside of the table. Um, it's it's always been something where we're storytelling at the table, of course. There's the role play, there's the interaction there, but to see how that spins off once you leave the table mm. is something that was very interesting to watch.
1: Absolutely, that was a first for me. I. Sat in a lot of brainstorm meetings and never have I onboarded writers to a new project by playing a game, uh, by playing a TTRPG. Yeah. So that was definitely new for everybody.
0: May it be the new normal. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it really, like, it was very educational for me. And it was Mike's, you know, Mike's thought, like, this would be a good way to onboard the writers. And shocker, he was right. <laughs> <laughs> One.
2: One thing too that was so fun about that is uh on on the world building team, all of us are TTRPG nerds. However, the expression of that is is kind of different because you've got Mike and Alex who play a lot of games. Mike is one of the best GMs I've ever gotten to sit at a table. I see you rolling your eyes you you are um, but they, don't interact with, like, the web show stuff for fun. Hmm. Like, their interactions with TTRPGs are mostly at a table and then, you know, interacting with some of the media that comes off of it. And I feel like I come from the end of, like, uh, originally when we started playing was right at the beginning of, you know, being in school and stuff. And our tables then moved across the country, and then the pandemic happened, and a lot of things kind of put stuff on pause. So a lot of my interactions in the in the midterm were watching other people play. And I, I love how that changes the conversations we have as far as like the player at the table view versus the audience view versus the GM view. And I, I think that's something that's been very fun to work through.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is what this podcast is about, is Every week we get to talk about the process of building this world, building the game, the different stories that have been and will be birthed out of the world.
0: I got a question for you, Victory, on that note. You've written a lot of screenplays. And you've run a lot of shows and productions. What have you noticed um, that's different about having game design incorporated in... The creative process.
1: Oh, man. Well, you know, usually it starts by staring at a blank page. And I always generally start with my character and for me um, or like a scene or something and then kind of build from there. So to have a completely realized world (laughs) where... I, like, I don't have to figure out what setting I'm in, you know, and my first step is as a player slash writer, if we're kind of going with the on the idea of onboarding writers through a TTRPG, you do make your character. That's the first thing you do is you make your character. And so it it's kind of, I don't know, just a beautiful combination of what I already would do, which is have my character and figure out what their backstory is and let them drive the story. But then you know you kind of have to like retroactively world build and you're not you know for a lot of things you're not world building to this degree but for something like this it's just it really opens up the imagination and it really opens up the scope of what you can do because you have this vast world and so it's very cool to just be like hey world building team can my character do this? Hmm. Or I want to, I want to do this. Can I do that? You know, and then to have you all say, you know, well, you can't do that for these reasons. Like there's, there's world rules that all make sense. They're grounded in, in science and they're, they all, um, yeah, they all make sense. So but you you offer solutions like well what are you trying to do like what is the intention behind this question and then I can explain that you know and then you can say well here are some options of things that you could do and I found that when we we were having the sessions with our writers that they came up with a lot of ideas and you, and sometimes you'd be like huh we hadn't thought of that before you know we need to go like do some things over here to flesh that out and and we can make that work. So it was just, you know, I love collaboration so much, just coming from the production side of things. And so it's just a really cool process Mm -hmm. to create Mm -hmm. uh, with other people, but you still have a lot of agency to do what you want to do. There's there's
2: something you've hinted at there, Mm -hmm. which is a conversation I'm sure we'll have later as well, but the idea that behind each player in a TTRPG, there's a set power fantasy they're trying to achieve, whether they're, you know, a super tanky, heavy hitter, combat-driven, or they want to be, you know, the courtier spy kind of deal. Like, what whatever their exact goal is for when they sit down at the table and they're making a player and a character, how they have fun. Um, and I, I think that's something that, Particularly when we've been bringing other people into the table, like you and like the writers, or even sometimes when like Mike and I sit down together and talk about things or like me and Alex, we'll all come at it from different perspectives and have different ideas of what power fantasies and things like that are fun to play. And trying to figure out how to set up a system that is not no but, but is yes anding mm-hmm.
1: that
2: mm-hmm. to to allow for a world where all of those can exist and exist in a way that feels natural and not, you know,
1: like a clunky homebrew solution to to fit that into the world. Absolutely. I feel like we could just keep talking for hours and hours, but we do have to wrap this uh, episode up. So uh, we'll be able to address all of this in even a deeper way in future episodes, but We do have our first listener-submitted question, so I would love to run this past you, Mike. EMBC asks, in the promo video, it looks like you are using human, bird, and insect creatures as the main characters in the world. I'm wondering why you chose birds and insects.
0: Yeah, great question. Uh, The Runja are bird-like. There are birds in the world, and it would be fair to say that birds and runja have a common ancestor more than runja are birds. Uh, But they are certainly bird-like. They have feathers. A lot of dinosaurs had feathers. So somewhere between a bird and a dinosaur, really. What I was noticing when I came up with the species that would have sapience in the world is uh, what if a planetary stage was big enough to allow room for um, multiple sort of phyla-level branches to achieve sentience and civilization. What species, no, no, not what species, what families of animals seem to be most likely to move in that direction evolutionarily, given enough space to occupy the niche? And the organisms that seem to be the most society-like are birds and animals. Insects. We don't know dinosaurs, by the way. It's been too long. Maybe. Uh, But birds form very, very large operational societies, typically around migration and around nesting, and they coordinate. And there's a lot of social behaviors they exhibit, and they are really intelligent. There's one animal on the planet that has a brain whose neuronal density and sophistication is higher than that of the human brain, and that is corvids, bird, uh, crows and ravens. They're, uh, some parrots, too, as well, by the way. Their brains are more dense with neurons than ours, and their brains are so dense they get too hot if they get big. So the only reason crows aren't wildly more intelligent than we are is that their brains get much bigger they overheat. Um, and so I, w- I thought that was really interesting. So what would it look like if there was an organism that had that kind of a, a neuronal density but had... Um, the body mass and, and spe- specifically cooling mechanisms to keep that kind of a brain cool and the runja do, but it's also why they tend to live in cold environments or aquatic environments to keep their brains cool. Uh, and then obviously, um, you social insects formed societies of millions or tens of millions of individuals way sooner than hominids did. So I was interested in what happened if, um, they already have kind of a super-intelligence across a colony, but if the individuals in that society uh, were sapient. Uh, so, the, you know, the, uh, the Torifex really are probably my favorite of the three, um, especially because every Torifex, to save some special examples, uses we, us pronouns because they are sapient, but they don't have an individual sense of identity in the way that the humans and the Runja do. So it was just me thinking about speculative evolution and then what it would look like for out of necessity, three sapient species to form a society together when in a prehistoric context, they were very much in conflict with one another, so.
1: Thank you, Mike. Well, we have come to the end of our episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have any questions that you want us to answer on the podcast, please follow us on socials and put your questions in the comments. We will read every single one of them, I promise.
0: We're at World of Vessor basically everywhere is the deal. Just whatever social media you're on, just find at World of Vessor and you'll find it.
1: That's right. So join us next week for more of Building Vesser, and to join our wait list and be the first to know about upcoming events. Please go to Vessor.com, which is V-E-S-S-E-R.com and follow, like, repost on socials.
0: Pafua Arasu.